Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Good to see everyone here today. Uh, this is a very special day for us and also for our brothers and sisters in Rivna, Ukraine. This is the fifth anniversary of the beginning of that church. And uh, they had a celebration today and uh, to rejoice in God's blessings and all the good that has been done there in five years. And as you think back over it, it has been a tremendous uh, number of blessings that God has bestowed upon his people. And uh, I'd like for us to begin this morning by just offering thanks for them and God's continued blessings on them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have entrusted to jars of clay a message that is so precious as the gospel. And Father, we are thankful for our brother and our sister, Victor and Helen Prokhorov and their family, the work that they began five years ago in the city of Rivna, those who have been brought to Christ because of their efforts, those who are currently being blessed through their efforts and through their ministry to people who are suffering and struggling and in need. And Father, we rejoice that we have been able to have a part in this, and we thank you, Father, for allowing us that privilege, and we pray your blessings in years to come. We continue to pray, Father, that you would sustain them through the time of war, and that you would bless them with the time of peace. Give them your blessing, your strength, and we pray that through them, that many, many more will come to know of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You probably found uh, in your order of worship today this card. Some of you have seen this before. Some of you have seen it many times before, but you may not have seen it before. But it is uh, entitled Becoming Part of the Glen Allen Church Family. And uh, if you are not a part of the Glen Allen Church Family, I hope that you will take this with you and read it. Notice that is not read it right now, but um, that you will take it with you and read it and give some serious thought to what it says and uh, read the scriptures that are there that will uh, guide you in uh, coming to Christ if that is your need, uh, if you have not yet done so, or becoming a part of this body, if in fact you have. But we want uh, you to know how very much we want you to be a part of the body here <clears throat> and what God has said in his word about following his son. It was in the second century AD that a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus wrote this very uncomplimentary review of Christians and their faith. Kelsa said the following are the rules laid down by them. Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there be any ignorant, any unintelligent, any instructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. By words which acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain only the silly, the mean, the stupid, the women, and children. Well, Celsus undoubtedly knew that Jesus drew a large portion of his following, a much larger portion of his following, in Palestine from the lower classes socioeconomically than he did from the rich and the powerful. And he obviously knew that the church, likewise, welcomed everyone, as did Jesus, regardless of their status, regardless of their background, regardless of where they had come from, regardless of their standing in the world. 
Kelsa saw this as a weakness. Since most organizations in the ancient world, like many organizations today, placed a premium uh, on status uh, and standing, and they did not want you and would not allow you to be a part of their group unless you met certain worldly qualifications, particularly having to do with wealth and power. And then there were other societies that were deemed fit only for slaves and for the ignorant. And that's how Kelsa saw the church as fit only for the slaves and the ignorant. So the church was very often the target of its opponents and criticisms like this and the continual put-downs of people who did not share their faith and who saw them as low-class and ignorant and foolish. Now, when Peter's writing 1 Peter, he knows that. He knows that these exiles, as he calls them, as he calls us, he knows that these exiles to whom he's writing are facing constant ridicule and criticism. So in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2, he reminds them of who they really are in the sight of God versus who the world thinks that they are. He draws a contrast between here's what the world thinks about you and here's what God thinks about you. But first of all, he reminds them that Jesus himself was a reject in the eyes of the world. You know, that just comes as shocking and jarring to us to even think it, much more to say it. But that's the way Jesus was regarded and yet he says Jesus was chosen and precious in the sight of God, maybe rejected by the world, but chosen and precious in God's sight. And so in verse 4, he says, as you come to him. Now, the Revised Standard Version says, come to him, as though it's an imperative. It's not. It's as you are coming to him. As you come to him, uh, describing a continual action. As you're coming to him. Know who you are. Now, we might wonder, why does he describe us as continually coming to Jesus? Because we think of coming to Jesus as what happens at conversion, don't we? You know, we sometimes use that expression that somebody had a come to Jesus moment uh, when they really got serious, you know, when they really realized their need. And yet at the same time, as believers, we keep coming to him over and over, don't we? We keep coming to him repeatedly because we know that he is the source of our life in God. And so Peter says, as you are coming to him, to that living stone, but to one to the unbelieving world who is rejected by men. And he calls Jesus that living stone. And then he quotes three prophecies from the Old Testament, three stone prophecies, all having to do with the stone. First of all, in verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 26. That Jesus, or Isaiah 28, that Jesus was a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That had been said long ago. Peter says it was talking about Jesus. Verse 7, he quotes Psalms 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that they didn't think was fit for anything. The stone that they didn't think should even be part of the building. The stone that they would have cast aside and maybe broken up for gravel has become the cornerstone. And then in verse 8, from Isaiah 8:14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because there are those who do not believe in that stone and who reject him. You know, Jesus had said that about himself. He quoted that prophecy from Psalms 118 when he told the parable about the, uh, the tenants. Remember that one? Uh, the parable about the tenants, the man who had the vineyard and he let it out to tenants and he kept sending servants 
to get his share of the, of the harvest and they mistreated them and, and killed some of them. And then finally he says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him, but they didn't. They treated him shamefully and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. And Jesus then quoted Psalms 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking of himself. That was exactly what was going to happen to him. The point being that the rejected stone became the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is the most important stone in any building. It's the first one laid. It is the one that determines the dimensions. It is the one that determines the angles. It is the one that determines everything. You start from that point and you build everything else out from the cornerstone. And so he says, although Jesus was rejected and was despised, that the builders looked at him as a stone and said, no, he's not fit for anything. He, in fact, became the foundation of all that God's, uh, God had planned to do for humanity. He is the cornerstone, even though he was rejected. And the other people, he said, stumbled over him. Instead of being the cornerstone for them, he became the stumbling stone. He's the one they tripped over. He's the one because they didn't believe in him, that they stumbled over him and they injured themselves. But none of that changed God's opinion. None of that changed God's estimation of Jesus. He is still God's living stone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, the prophet had said. And now Peter's saying that to these despised exiles that he's writing to in the first century world. And it's from that rejected stone, this despised stone, this suffering servant that the church derives its own identity we derive our identity from him because he was chosen and precious. Now Peter says we are chosen and precious. If he is not to us that stumbling stone, if we acknowledge him as that cornerstone and we put our trust in him, then he becomes that source of blessing to us. And so Peter starts there and he uses three images to describe the church. He uses three images to describe these exiles who in the sight of God were not very worth very much, who as far as the world was concerned could just be cast aside. They had no important role to play. Who they were and what they did was so insignificant, but he wants to show the exalted status and the standing with God. Kurt and I were watching some football games yesterday, and these were big games. Uh, 80,000, 100,000 people in attendance. And they're just wild. I mean, the fans are just going crazy, you know, and they're yelling and they're cheering and they're going on. And as I sat there and looked at that, I thought, you know, all they got to do is open the gates and 100,000 people come in wildly enthusiastic. As the church, we're hoping there'll be a hundred and a half tomorrow. You know, the world could look at that and say, you people are fooling yourselves. Who do you think you are? Why do you think what you're doing right now has any significance or any value at all? Why do you think it's worth anything? What's worth something's got to be where the 100,000 are, right? It's got to be where there's such wild enthusiasm and so much cheering and so much spectacle and all that going on. And then what you guys are doing 
It just can't be that important, right? You see, that's the world's estimation. That's the world's estimation. And Peter wants us to know, just like he wanted these people in the first century to know, that is not the estimation of God. And so he says, first of all, you are God's spiritual house. You are God's spiritual house. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. But we ourselves are the individual stones to be built into that spiritual house. We are the stones out of which the house is built. Now, what does Peter mean by a spiritual house? Well, I think he's obviously comparing us to the temple. We are God's temple now because he talks about this as the place where spiritual sacrifices are offered. And all the, the people of his time, particularly the Jews, knew that it was only in the temple in Jerusalem that you could offer those sacrifices. And so he says, now you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house where these spiritual sacrifices are being offered. You are God's temple. You are God's spiritual house. He's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about God's temple being God's people. That's one of the marvels of the new covenant faith is that no longer is it about a physical place. No longer is it about a particular kind of building. It is about being a particular kind of people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, describing himself and Apollos, he says, we are God's fellow workers. And then he says to the Corinthian church, you are God's field, God's building. You are God's building. Same concept as in 1 Peter 2. You are that temple in which God dwells. In the verses 16 and 17 of that chapter, he elaborates on that. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's why we are the temple of God, because his spirit is living in us. His spirit lives in us, and so we are his temple. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are that temple. As you and I sit here today, and as people drive by in their cars and they look and they see, what, there's that bunch of people in there. Who are they? What are they doing? We are God's temple. That's who we are. We're God's temple. We are that spiritual building that he has built on the foundation of his own son. And because we are that temple, we can worship and serve him wherever we happen to be. We don't have to have some special kind of building. I've heard of Christians worshiping God in a renovated stable <laughs> and other kinds of places. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone today, he preaches in Little Rock, Arkansas. They're about to move into a renovated television station. I thought, what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing to broadcast the gospel. They're not looking at it from the television aspect, but it's it's the space they're going to occupy. But what's important is the people in the space. It's not what was that space built for, what was it originally used for. It's who are the people who are occupying it. They are God's temple. They are God's building. You and I are God's temple. We are God's building. Second, Peter says, we are God's holy priesthood. Verses 4 and 5. We're not only the temple, we're also the priests who minister in it. 
Isn't that, a, isn't that a clever use of imagery on Peter's part? He says, we're the living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why are we a royal priesthood? Because we serve the king. We are priests to the king. We are a royal priesthood. Now, all of that kind of language goes back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. If Israel obeyed God's voice at Sinai, he brought them out of bondage in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and he says, if you will obey my voice, he said, then you will become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. Now, Notice that he doesn't say just some of them. The whole nation would become this kingdom of priests. The whole nation would be holy. Now, a priest is somebody who has access to God and who serves as a go-between between God and people who don't have access to him. A priest is someone who connects people to God that's what God was telling Israel was their task. I want you to connect the world to me. I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you remember that was the promise made to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will, will, are to be blessed. All the nations of the earth were to be blessed. They were to be that holy priesthood. And now he says that the church has inherited that same task. We are to minister the gospel to all nations. This priesthood that Peter is talking about consists of every Christian, not just a few. I think it was Martin Luther who coined the phrase, the priesthood of all believers, but he didn't coin the idea. Peter did. Exodus 19 did. God did. We are that royal priesthood we are that holy nation and we offer spiritual sacrifices now we might stop and wonder there what what kind of sacrifices do you and I offer what are these spiritual sacrifices that Peter is thinking about we need to be very clear he's not talking about sacrifices for sins you and I can't offer that Jesus did it once for all and there are no more sacrifices to be offered for sin we can't do that so it's not that, but there are other kinds of sacrifices. You remember Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our lives are sacrifices to God. They're supposed to be, supposed to be used in his service. We ourselves are a spiritual sacrifice to God. In Philippians 4.18, Paul was thanking the Philippians for sending him help in the spreading of the gospel, sending him help to support him in what he was doing in his work of ministering the gospel among the Gentiles. And he said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, what you did was a sacrifice offered up to God. And then 
In Hebrews 13, 15, we read this, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We've been offering up sacrifices this morning. When we sung these hymns of praise to God, when we have praised his name, when we have praised him in prayer, when we are worshiping him, we are offering up a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we share what we have with other people, those are sacrifices that are given to God. They are pleasing to him, Peter says. So through our worship, through our giving, through our service to other people, we are acting as God's holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices as that priesthood. The world may not know that that's who we are, but we know that that's who we are. And notice that there is not a priesthood within the priesthood. Peter never mentions that. Nobody in Scripture ever mentions that, that there is some kind of special group that is a priesthood within the priesthood. No, we are all that priesthood. This is a joint responsibility that each and every one of us has as part of the body of Christ. We are God's spiritual building, his temple. We are also the priests who minister in that temple. Then he says we are also God's new Israel. Verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know where all that language comes from? About being a chosen race, about being God's people. It comes from the Old Testament. That's all, that's the way that the Bible speaks about Israel. And Peter says, now you are that chosen people. You are that new Israel of God. Notice the contrast between verses 8 and 9. He talks about unbelievers stumbling over Jesus. He says, they stumbled because of unbelief. And then verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation. They stumble, but you are honored. You are exalted by God making you his own people, his new people. As God's new Israel, we have a special assignment, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our task in this world. That's why we're here. That's what we're supposed to be all about. Proclaiming the excellencies of the God who has saved us. Not to tell the world about us, but to tell the world about him. That's our calling. That's our mission. You know, when you go back and read the story of Israel, they didn't fulfill their mission very well. The reason they didn't fulfill it very well was because they thought it was all about them. They thought how wonderful that God has chosen us and blessed us to be his people. How wonderful it is to be one of the chosen people of God. And they got so wrapped up in that that they forgot that the chosen people of God had a mission to the world. 
And they failed miserably in taking the message of that God to the world to which God had sent them. And so when Jesus came, here's what he wrote on their report card. Matthew 23, verses 13 and 14. You shut the kingdom in people's faces. He says, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to come in. Not only were they guilty, the religious leaders at least, not only were they guilty of not coming into the kingdom themselves, they were trying to shut the door so nobody else could get in. The very opposite of what their role was as the chosen people of God. And then in verse 15, Jesus said, you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Can you imagine a worse indictment? They had a missionary spirit, didn't they? That's one of the interesting things about that verse. They had a missionary spirit. He said, you travel over land and sea to make a single proselyte. You'll spare no effort to make a single proselyte. But when you do, what do you do? He says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves because you turn him away from God's cornerstone. You turn him away from the one who is chosen and precious in God's sight. You know, I wonder if God were to write a report card on the church in 2022. wonder what it would say. If he were evaluating us on how well we have carried out, are carrying out our task to declare his excellencies to the world, would we fare any better than those folks in Matthew 23? Or do we, too, sometimes forget our mission? Do we get so distracted? So distracted. And folks, I, I've come to the conclusion that that's probably the besetting sin of the church is distraction. We get so distracted with our own lives and our own stuff. We get so distracted with ourselves as people. They were not thinking about the world that we're trying to reach. And we think as long as everything is okay with us and suits us and is, we've got it kind of the way we want it, that's all that matters. I wonder what God would say if he wrote a report card on the church. You know, this isn't just the responsibility of the church collectively. It's the responsibility of Christians individually because we aren't going to do it collectively if we're not doing it individually. If we aren't individually, personally, trying to tell others the message of Christ, we're not going to do it collectively. We're not all of a sudden going to flip a switch and come together and become this dynamic body reaching out to the world. That has to be going on every day in the places where we live and work. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own people. We need to be sure we're doing the task of God's own people. One more thing we need to notice here. Given what Peter says about the church, it means the church is important. 
you may be sitting there and thinking that's about the, the least necessary statement you could have made. But I think sometimes we miss it. The importance of the church. You know, there's a great irony in the world today that some folks who talk a lot about Jesus downplay the church. Some folks who talk a lot about their personal relationship with the Lord will tell you that the church is entirely optional to your faith. That you can choose to be a part of it or you cannot. You can opt in or you can opt out and everything's fine with God. If what we've just read in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 is true and you and I know that it is, that's a ridiculous statement. But the irony is that you've got people who are talking about Jesus and who declare their love for Jesus, but they say the church is not important. How can it be unimportant to be God's temple? How can it be unimportant whether or not you're a functioning part of a royal priesthood? How can it be unimportant whether or not you identify yourself readily as one of God's chosen people to declare the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light? What scripture says is that we are that priesthood, we are that temple, we are that chosen people, and that God's plan for you and for his church cannot be fulfilled apart from knowing who we are and apart from being a part of that chosen people and doing God's will. You can become a part of that chosen people the same way that you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You confess that you believe in him, that he is in fact God's son and the savior of the world. He's not that rejected stone. He is the cornerstone of it all. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And then turning away from your sins, being baptized into him, to have your sins washed away, and to be incorporated into that family, into that spiritual house, into that people, being born anew into the family, the people of God. And then it won't matter what the world thinks. It won't matter at all what the world thinks. That's who you are. If you're ready to take that step and follow Jesus, come and tell us. Let's stand and sing. Oh.